I have understanding. Uh, understanding of what, Master? Of digital watches. And soon I shall have understanding of video cassette recorders and car telephones. And when I have understanding of them, I shall have understanding of computers. And when I have understanding of computers, I shall be the supreme being. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP podcast from the Intermillennium Media Project. My name is Matthew Porter. And if this map is correct, I should be Ian Porter. <laughs> I'm his dad. He's my son. And uh, we've watched another movie from way is back in the was? 20th century. Oh, this was, was such a movie. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Ah, movie is definitely one word used. <laughs> one thing you can use to describe this. This is not the first movie from this director that we have watched together, but I think it is the first one we're talking about on the podcast. I think so. This is one that you've shown me before. This is one of those movies you've shown me that made us think, oh, we could do a podcast. And that's pretty awesome. But that doesn't... This one is... This one's quite the the pool to jump in on and it is the movie we're talking about is 1981's time bandits directed by terry gilliam oh boy at the time very much of monty python fame oh yeah and my goodness you can feel it (laughs) this movie this movie feels like a distillation of something there's some there's some element of what the Monty Python-y stylings were. This movie is such like a pure version. I feel like drinking <laughs> this is drinking coffee concentrate when I'm used to drinking, you know, cups of you know standardly brewed. <laughs> well, oh, this is the, the third feature on which Terry Gilliam has uh, directing credit. The first one was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes. Which is very much, yeah, Terry Gilliam directed it, but this is a Monty Python movie. Mm-hmm. The second is Jabberwocky, which is kind of a bridge. It has some similarities to a Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and yet it's you can see that it's it's Terry Gilliam branching out. The sentence you just said implies that there is a context I am missing. And that implies that would help make this understandable. But I refuse to believe that this other movie, Jabberwocky, would make Time Bandits any more understandable. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. I think that okay. the thing is that, that Jabberwocky was still very disjointed in the same way that, that Monty Python and the Holy Grail was. And it's when you get to Time Bandits that you seeing that you, that you start to see Terry Gilliam making fully realized features with carefully constructed screenplays and a, a story with a structure around it. It's for lack of a better term, it's it's in some ways Gilliam's first real movie, as opposed to something that is strange and interesting, but kind of gimmicky, like the Monty Python movie and like uh like Jabberwocky. Hmm. And this is a movie that I remember watching this for the first time in a way that just made me feel like I was so cool. Okay. Because I saw this movie when I was, I was in high school, 
but I was visiting your Uncle Jim at college. Oh. And the college they showed in one of the giant lecture halls showed movies on Saturday nights. And while I was there, the movie they were showing was Time Bandits. And I hadn't gotten to see it before when it was in the theaters. So I first saw it visiting my brother, surrounded by college kids. I was like 14 or 15. It just seemed so cool. And that, that definitely added to the impact of the movie. And yet, it's not as if it's some hyper-intellectual movie. It's just <laughs> no. it's weird. And it's got it so is- many moving parts. It is brilliantly weird. And it's interesting because this is a movie that I I have my own story of the first time I saw it, thanks to you. Because you showed it to me when I was in middle school. And it was an interesting time to see it because I'm there in middle school. There's a couple of things that I was like, I'm just getting old enough to get into some of these weird movies you wanted to show me. And so, like we would watch these things whenever you could get like a library DVD of them and stuff like that. And it was something that no one else in my grades would understand. No one was going to get my reference. No one was, uh, no one else had heard of, let alone seen most of these films that had been shown. But it was also the start of being a person who went onto the internet a lot. The computer lab was something. And it was interesting because as the, 2000s internet culture started to take root in the way it was i was seeing people using tiny clips of time bandits as reaction and response response and such it became a source of gifts and a source of gifts of the right kind of bewilderingly weird that fit the absurdist humor of the time but everyone was just no clue where these things were coming from. And I'm the only one saying, wait a minute, it's that weird thing my dad showed me. <laughs> and I was I was a kid who wouldn't actually say that. I was nervous and I wouldn't do so. And I was a that that's my own things. But still, it was fun to get to watch like a corner of the internet rediscover this and just kind of stand back and watch them pick this thing up and look at her look at it from all angles and not know what they're doing not know what they're dealing with and i'm there with the information it's very it was a very fun position to be in but a weird confluence of of things for me to be there i hadn't really thought about this as something that had that kind of of cultural impact even at the time with it being you know, discussed on the internet and memes and things. It's not a movie I ever went back to to find that kind of thing in the 90s once I started using the internet. So it's interesting to, to hear that it sort of bridged that gap in that way. There was an entire style of kind of the weird editing and absurdity that came out of the availability of simple editing programs like Windows Movie Maker, and a lot of people with digitizing libraries of old VHS tapes and other such things. So that strange advertisements and Disney movies and things like this would be mashed up. It was an entire group of video types, unfortunately at times referred to as YouTube poop, because they were these (laughs) wild, smashed up messes of, of video. But Time Bandits already has the same sort of chaotic energy 
that these early editors were going for. So clips of giant boats, of dwarves swinging on ropes from cages, of a bunch of people stumbling onto a stage and making a fool of themselves, and of an ending scene involving a very, very sudden jump cut explosion were all extremely popular clips to throw in because they already had the same sort of energy that people were dragging out of other media they had on hand. Yeah, I could see those kind of being useful in certain ways. I'm trying to think of a structure to talk about this movie. I mean, I guess we can kind of go through the sequence of the story, but we're going to be stopping to talk about these little vignettes, because it really is, it's assembled out of vignettes, the way Gilliam's other movies are, but it has such a powerful structure around it that it really saves that. Audience, have you ever made that thing where you mix water and cornstarch called oobleck? That new that non-Newtonian that Newtonian fluid where if you hit it, it feels like a solid thing. But if you try to pick it up, it's this oozy mess of a liquid. Trying to explain this movie is like the cinematic version of oobleck. <laughs> the moment you try to analyze it, you either come at it with too much force and it acts as a solid unit. And you can't break it apart to analyze. But the moment you try to break it apart to analyze, any connective tissue of any of the scenes you thought was there is going to ooze right through your description fingers and back into the bowl. (laughs) I've never thought of a a movie in those terms, but I like it. This is cinematic oobleck. Because, like, we can review the concept of this following Kevin, our main character, this this 11-year-old boy, his, his family life, which is not great, as we get to see in the start. This weird, kind of at the time, but also weirdly cynical, futuristic in some ways, descriptions of the modern world he's living in. And that's going to be great until we get to the rest of the movie at which point you don't touch that until the very end and it's kind of odd because you almost forget that it's there for a while or we can talk about the pile of six dwarfs that fall out of his wardrobe and the interesting dragged into a D game you weren't ready for feel the rest of it has because of this wild party that shows up and brings him along I do think it is important to start with Kevin, because something occurred to me about the nature of this story when watching it this most recent time, and that is that this is a kid's story. Yes. And by that, I don't mean that this is a story for children. I mean, this is the kind of story a child would tell for his own amusement, maybe share with a close friend. But there's something about the energy of it. It's very much the way a child would tell a story. Absolutely. And in that, it isn't a nice, funny, cheerful story that some people would construct for a child. It's not a super focused, scary morality story the way uh, people might make up other stories to tell children. This is the kind of story a child would invent. Which means... It's weirder than what other people would invent for children. It's scarier than what the most of what people would invent for children. Yeah. It puts Kevin at the center, and yet it puts him at the center 
of both a, a wild adventure and very scary high-stakes things. And kids, kids understand that the world is scary because they don't understand much of the world. It's scarier than, than it is for anyone else. And their stories are going to reflect that. So here we've got this, this strange kind of soulless world in which Kevin is growing up. And it's an exaggeration of, an, of a, a suburban upbringing, a suburban childhood with his parents obsessed with game shows and who has the best appliances and all this kind of really mundane stuff. And yet Kevin, as, as you say, he's suddenly swept into this very dramatic adventure by the, the, the room that is the one place that's his being destroyed by knights and horses and, and crazy little people and the like. Exactly. And when this movie is dreamlike in that sense it it definitely has that but it also is vague and uncertain and admits that even for kids their dreams are going to have aspects they're trying to understand it's going to have partial fragments of things and in a movie that makes it feel unfulfilling at times but in terms of the type of story that is leaving something unanswered makes sense because our perspective character here is not going to be able to answer that yet. And that's an important part. And these vignettes that it's made of, they're very often joined by just a simple, and then, or, and here's what happened (laughs) next. But within each one of these little stories within the story, it's pretty well structured. And there is a reason for things. And one event leads to another. And the fact that it's sometimes hard to see the really clear reasoning going from one of these chunks to another is part of what makes it a little scary and a little edgy is that, you know, you have no idea what's going to happen next. I might know what's happening right now, where I am right now, but I have no idea what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. And it kind of feels like that watching the movie. Yeah. Because what happens with Kevin is they establish early on that Kevin loves history. He's always reading history books and military history, especially. And he goes to bed one night and suddenly out of the the cheap manufactured fiberboard wardrobe across his, the room from his bed, it bursts into splinters and a knight in full armor on horseback comes charging out of it and through what should be the wall to his bedroom. And instead it leads out into a forest clearing and then everything goes back to normal, but he's certain this was not a dream. He's certain enough to prepare a, a, a toolkit for next time. <laughs> Very cleverly. He has a flashlight. He has a, a camera, an SX 70 Polaroid camera. I loved those things. And he's ready to gather evidence because he figures it happened once. It's going to happen again. And it does kind of. Yeah, he is a good scientist in that sense. (laughs) He expects repeatability and he acts accordingly. Exactly. And yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen the same way. No, he doesn't get a knight in, uh, in armor on horseback. Instead, he gets a, a collection of little people. The group Randall, the leader, Fidget, Strutter, Og, Wally, and Vermin, who are very, very disorganized and wildly aggressive most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, they have like two modes. 
super aggressive or terrified and super obsequious. It's just there. Those are their is, two gears. Absolutely. This is where the, the D and D aspect really comes through for me, because <laughs> if you ever want to see what it's like, when you've got a bunch of people who can either run roll for charisma or attack, that is these, <laughs> that is these six. They have no midpoint. They're either trying to be your friend or trying to punch you. <laughs> and at first, once they, they, break into Kevin's room through the wardrobe. It's kind of like the anti-Narnia in that respect. The wardrobe yeah. opens up and these weird things from another place invade Kevin's world. But they don't even notice him until he turns on the flashlight. And as soon as he does, they're terrified. And they start making excuses and apologies. And we just meant to borrow it, et cetera, et cetera. Until they realize that Kevin's not really the person they were afraid of, and at which point they jump him and try to beat him into submission. <laughs> yeah. And again, this is the combination of weirdness and horrifyingness, uh, frighteningness that uh, that a story from a kid would have. Exactly. And as he's being mugged, it's the best way to describe. <laughs> yes. The thing the, these six were actually afraid of, the supreme being, appears as a floating head and kind of chases everyone out the wall <laughs> as they push the wall that they realized was the door they were looking for out of here. Yeah, suddenly his, uh, his, his entire bedroom is mutable and walls can change places. They're looking for a, speci a specific place in his room, and once they find it, they're able to change its shape just by pushing on things. Yeah, And they're desperate to escape the supreme being who is in the form of this, this glowing animated head, which, given the fact that it's an animation insert into this movie, it looks pretty good. It looks just otherworldly enough while still being solid and therefore scary. It gave me openings to the uh, to episodes of Red Dwarf vibes. I like that. I get that. And and that's kind of the, the setup. You, that's kind of the most of the setup you get, because. From there, these vignettes take as they run about all of time and space. And shortly after that, I think, is when Kevin gets the explanation of who these guys are. Yeah. And, and why they're, they're there and what they're doing. And he learns, yeah, that was the supreme being. <laughs> I love the res Kevin's responses. You mean God? <laughs> and to which Randall no, we don't know him. Well, we don't know him that well. <laughs> Well, we only worked for him. <laughs> right. Because these, these six worked in like R&D, developing new things to be put on the Earth. But when they were told to start fixing up some holes in space-time, they realized, wait a minute, the map of things we need to go fix is actually a lot better as a way to sneak into places and steal riches and escape. <laughs> There are all these holes in space-time that you can use to get from one time and place to another, and they have the map. So now they fancy themselves as international criminals going out to uh, to raid wherever the most riches are. Exactly. <laughs> and so Kevin kind of becomes the seventh member, and they immediately get themselves involved in Napoleon Bonaparte during the Battle of Castiglione. Yeah, we get to see Ian Holm as uh, as Napoleon a weird, neurotic, over-the-top depiction of Napoleon, but it works for this movie. It works very well for this movie. He, if Napoleon, and it, 
is obsessed with the heights of various world conquerors throughout history. And it very much fits a kid's understanding of Napoleon to that extent. It does. A very weird sequence, which is another one of the ones that the internet loved to use of of uh how they distract napoleon yeah it's very good napoleon wants as his entertainment he's like holding this theater and this theater ownage owner hostage essentially and but he wants specific kinds of entertainment he just doesn't want singers and dancers he wants what is it little people hitting each other that's what i want Yes. (laughs) So you've got this troop of little people who are trying to get into Napoleon's good graces so they can rob him, and they take the stage and do a song and dance number that devolves into them hitting each other, and Napoleon thinks it's the best thing he's ever seen. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He comes to the back and like tells them they all have a great future, (laughs) and then very strangely fires most of his generals to hire the troop of uh, performers. heroes protagonists protagonists <laughs> we'll go with that yeah hires them as temporary uh generals which just gives them an opportunity to raid the treasure and leave so they just have to be patient until um until napoleon drinks himself to sleep and then they can gather all the riches that he's got that he's looted from uh from the city and find another time hole to escape into and randall is desperately trying to keep the other five kind of in line as a group but Kevin is kind of going along more like a tourist, taking photos, experiencing and being fascinated with where he is instead of what they're grabbing. And yet at the same time, it's Kevin's knowledge of history that winds up helping them know where they are and how to deal with it. And they escape from from Napoleonic France into England, where they meet Robin Hood. Yes. Robin Hood played by John Cleese who this it is such a brilliant this honestly I would watch an entire movie of this version of Robin Hood (laughs) just because all of his all of his men are absolutely like bandits and thieves in the woods they are scarred they are tattooed they're arm wrestling drunkards fighting each other and and living in the forest and (laughs) But meanwhile, he is in the full green with the tights, classic outfit, looking spick and span and talking very politely to everybody. (laughs) And all of these terrifying, scary guys are just very happy and very kind to follow this this version of Robin Hood's command. Yeah, Robin Hood sounds like some kind of a of a glad handing home counties politician. And yes. everybody else is just this, yeah, the kind of people you would expect to be medieval bandits. Ever been able to tell when your DM has a, a mini from a different manufacturer because <laughs> the paint and the paint and the style is completely wrong? Oh yeah, this is that. But it's really fun. But they lose all of their treasure because Robin Hood, well, thanks them for their donation and then gives it to the poor. <laughs> yeah, Randall thinks maybe my gang and your gang can get together and pull off something big and and uh yeah, Robin Hood's response is, "Well, thank you very much for your donation. The poor are going to be be very excited. You, Have you met them, the poor?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have expected him to hand them a tax receipt for their donation. <laughs> like, "Oh my goodness." 
So every time we we get to a place, be it and, and meet an historical figure, be it Napoleon or Robin Hood, it's enough like what Kevin expects that his knowledge is valuable, and yet it's just weirder than anyone had a reason to expect. Exactly. It's just off in that right amount to never <laughs> let you feel settled. <laughs> and we also around this time get introduced to evil. Yes. He's just evil played by David Warner. Oh, who else are you going to cast? If you want to cast the, the embodiment of ultimate evil, it's got to be David Warner. And he just pulls out all the stops. I know he, he does such a good job. Yeah. (laughs) He's this hyper intellectual and yet easily provoked satanic figure. Yes. And he's very, it's a very interesting way of depicting because he's following this group and doing the things you expect in terms of trying to, to find a way out of his imprisonment. Ah, they'll be my key. Ah, yes. But he's also like, first, I must understand computers. <laughs> Which is such a wild mo- bit, because he's like, trying to catch up to the modern world. It's like, well, if I'm going to take it over, I need to know how it works. <laughs> It's very much that that sense of technology when people den- generally didn't use computers on on a on a personal basis and yet it was creeping into everyday life because they talk about digital watches and car telephones and those things that were just beginning to make an incursion into computers becoming part of everyday life and and there was a lot of response to that of this is changing who we are and, and what it means to be human. And I could see that being something you, in a, a movie made at this time, you tap into that to show what someone who's interested in, in power and knowledge, as opposed to good, is going to focus on. To make reference to a different British thing, the same way that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy likes to make jokes about uh, looking down at Earth initially and thinking cars were the uh, the main species compared to these humans. <laughs> There's this way evil approaches technology and media and the presentation and pomp and circumstance of it as the actual thing he's taking over to take over the world. And the people are these secondary thing that will come along with it. It's a very interesting and understandable take, but it's got that same kind of take a step back and look at things and you can <laughs> understand where the air quotes mistake comes from. Yeah. Or even yeah. question whether or not they've got better point than you do. And that comparison with uh with Douglas Adams is very apt. There's very much a a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy feel to a lot of this in terms of the humor, in terms of the the fact that it hinges on a bizarre cosmology, there's very much a resonance there. And, oh, yeah. And as they are are leaving um, medieval England uh, and Robin Hood's camp, this the supreme being shows up again because he's tracking them through time and space, wanting to get back the map that they stole. And this is where they get split up. There are two time holes next to each other, and Kevin takes one, uh, he takes that one just at the point where Randall is saying, no, 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 not that one. And of they wind up in different places. And that's where he winds up in Mike, Mike and A in Greece. 
which is honestly, it feels like it drops into a completely different movie in a very fun way. It does, because the, the weirdness that we saw in Napoleonic Europe and in, in Robin Hood's England, that's kind of missing from, from this new location. We've got monsters, and we've got King Agamemnon having this duel with a, a minotaur, and that's what Kevin drops in on. And, and yet it all seems more real, it all seems more understandable, and maybe there again, we're seeing this through Kevin's eyes because we saw him at the very beginning of the movie, he was reading about ancient Greece and about their great heroes of legend and about King Agam uh, Agamemnon. So I think because of that, he felt more excited to be there and more at home there than he had in any of the other places. He comes to really like this. It's a nicer home than he's used to. He gets adopted by the king. He's learning things from him. It's a great time for Kevin. Yeah, and it's Sean Connery playing Agamemnon. And Which, it, honestly, of all <laughs> the things I've seen Sean Connery play, he plays Agamemnon really well. He does. You know anything about that guy in the, the stories he's from? My goodness. He plays that really well. He's got the right kind of, like, friendly, you can trust me, I'm happy, but also, I don't have as many qualms about having to fight someone you might expect, <laughs> and I'm a trickster who happens to be in charge, not purely a leader. And Kevin, uh, he, he wants to stay... He is quite clear that no, he doesn't have any particular interest in going back to his mom and dad in their, their suburban house. Uh, he's very happy to be adopted by the king uh, and, and made the heir and to, to stay there and learn how to sword fight. But it is not to last. No. Because he gets kidnapped back by the crew that want, who want to make sure he's still there with them. Yeah, they, they, they rescue him from this wonderful life in uh, in ancient Greece. And uh and, yeah. <laughs> and just when you're settling in with Kevin into this very different movie tone for a moment. Nope. <laughs> you're pulled back into the movie we the, the movie already in progress. <laughs> and there again, I think the movie by by shifting tones like that, it's it's sharing with us the disorientation and maybe the disappointment that Kevin was feeling. I I know the I knew the movie was not going to stay there, but I could have enjoyed more of the movie taking place uh, with uh, back there with King Agamemnon than uh, than suddenly having to go back with the uh, with with Randall and crew. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would watch this. I would have watched uh, this Agamemnon go through the entire Iliad <laughs> stuff. It's like I want to see this story. But no, no. We, we don't get that one. No, Dang it. instead they they rescue him, and next thing you know, they're on a uh, a ship. Uh, they're on the yep. Titanic. Everyone gets fancy little suits. Oh, and it's on the Titanic. We get the second of two sequences that I really could have done without. It's this yeah. little incursion of Monty Pythonism that we didn't really need in. Robin Hood's England, we have, oh, what are their names? It's, it's played by Michael Palin and Shelley Duvall. Yeah, 
it kind of sets up that there is there's always couples like this that these that these seven are are crashing their way through yeah it's which, vincent and pansy yeah and, and we see them in in england they're essentially the same two people centuries later on the titanic and which it's, that, it's, that could have been a completely fine other movie give me a story about like a a couple that keeps not working out throughout time life after life because a time traveler keeps <laughs> messing up every single time they try to get together that's a different story great it's not fitting in this one and they keep trying to jam this square this square uh other script idea into this round time bandits hole and and the fact that it's also it's built around these kind of unfunny jokes and such it's the one part of the movie that absolutely doesn't feel like part of a story that a child is telling for him himself or his best friend. Yeah. So it kind of takes me out of the movie every time this couple shows up. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Of course, the Titanic does what the Titanic does. But at the same time, we've got more plotting from evil about how to how to lure Randall and his crew to to his fortress with the map because evil is 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 imprisoned in the fortress of ultimate darkness which is all part of his plan it's not like the it's not like the supreme being is somehow keeping him there at least that's what evil insists at that point it just it it kind of shifts again because we we go from the world's been getting weirder they've they've been getting a little bit more fantastical and now we completely go into the time of legends. Yes, this is by where evil's machinations. Kevin's knowledge of history is is of no use really because it's it's almost like the the source material for a million fairy tales, but so far removed that you never know what you're going to find. There's the the ogre and his wife who live on a ship. The ship turns out to be the hat of a giant, and it's just one bit of weirdness after another. And yet Kevin's and it, cleverness, even though his knowledge isn't really useful, his cleverness still is. He's still able to help them figure out how to get out of one fix after another. And it starts moving quicker at this point, too. It does. It's like all the little vignettes are getting shorter. There's this drum roll rising action in that sense. As we go from, you know, the, the ogres to the hat to the invisible wall. And the invisible wall scene is funny because it's like, oh, that's what an invisible force field <laughs> looks like. It's one of those lines where you'll, you're, it just takes a moment. You're like, wait a minute. What? Okay. But it's moving so quickly that they're already walking past it and into the, the, the fortress by that point. Also, at that point... The, the tensions within the group are getting hotter, which adds, I think, to the childlike scariness of it, as Randall and Wally are, are... They disagreed on things before, but now they're really, really disagreeing about whether they should go back, whether they should keep trying to find this fortress that that evil has implanted in, in the minds of one of them, that the most valuable object in the universe exists in this fortress. That's why they need to find it. Mm-hmm. 
and yet, yeah, they eventually they do break through the force field and they're able to get into the fortress. And they walk straight into Evil's Trap. And Evil's Trap is formatted like the show his folks watched. <laughs> and his parents reappear at this point. And after that amount of movie, it kind of throws you because you're you aren't ready for them to be back. You didn't expect this yet. But the format's right there again. Yeah, it's got Jim Broadbent as the the game show host who is uh, enticing people to 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 give up something. It's give up their time, I think, if you're talking yeah. about his parents. It's give up the map if it's uh, if it's talking about our our protagonist. Mm-hmm. And evil gets the map and locks them all in a cage over a bottomless pit. But Kevin's been taking photos the entire time. And one of the photos is a group shot with the map unfurled. And they f- have a copy of the map, which is just a brilliant setup. It is. They, they, they establish that early on and, and it pays off. Mm-hmm. So they know that nearby there is a time hole they could use to escape, but they have to get out of these cages and get to the right place. And that leads to this kind of long, maybe a little longer than it needs to be, sequence of fashioning ropes and swinging from one cage to another and getting to safety. But as you're telling me, it is a, a source of a lot of uh, internet images. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> it, 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 it's, a, it's a fun little sequence of... An, a, a clever little escape, but it's also very quick cut and very closely shot. And it's a nice centered image with a big black background <laughs> around it. So you can loop things like them swinging from cage to cage in an infinitely looping gif. <laughs> and it just doesn't stop anymore. And it's perfect for the internet. This ending, as it gets quicker and crazier, it actually fits some of that reaction image kind of culture better i think randall and most of the others they just want to escape but kevin realizes no evil has the map we have to get the map back because who knows what he'll be able to do once he's got this he's going to take over the entire universe so they now have a mission within the fortress which is to get the map back easier said than done but also not too Difficult to do, apparently. They get the map back <laughs> from where it's been left sitting pretty quickly. It's actually escaping with it. That's the tricky part. Right. Well, fortunately for them, uh, Evil's hench people, who are diminishing in number because he keeps blowing them up out of a fit of peak or to make a point. But uh, they're not the brightest in the world. So getting the no. map, as you say, is not that difficult. But... Yeah, they can't escape with it because it doesn't take long for um, for evil to find out that they're there and that they're trying to get uh, get away with the map. And this is a point where I think that this this last section of the movie could have been a lot shorter and a lot more concise and just sort of seems to drag on. Oh, yes. Because evil is going to fight them and is shown to be extremely powerful. And Kevin distracts evil while everyone else runs off through time and returns with fighting people and warriors and weapons from all across time. 
But then every single one of them gets defeated in a very long and very silly sequence. And we've got mounted knights, we've got tanks from the 20th century, we've got a some kind of a spaceship with laser guns, we've got cowboys, and yeah, we're treated to cowboys talking about having a lynching, and I could have done without that. Yeah, that was um, that was really awkward. And that was really unpleasant. Yeah. And we just they we get a sequence where one of these groups from somewhere in history tries to attack uh evil evil has some either clever or just purely violent way of of thwarting that attack and then we start with the next group until they're all done one excellent moment i will point out though during this entire sequence this overblown sequence is that as we get to see more of the castle as it's lit up all of the castle is made of large rectangular stones with little round pegs on top, <laughs> like Lego. I liked that. And all of the way that evil defeats the things around him are reminiscent of the, f- of the toys we saw scattered on Kevin's floor when he scanned his flashlight across the bedroom at the start of the movie. Oh, I had Spinning pieces, made that the robot with the lasers, all of yes. the things that are evil are part of what's in his room. And toy soldiers and toy knights and cowboys and all these things. You're right. It it fits into the whole idea of this being a story from a child for, for exactly. his own benefit. And it fits, but it also is kind of weird because it's a, it's labeled all of these things as evil. And showing them winning. And then the entire fight is made moot because in the middle of kind of cackling in his success, evil explodes. Just explodes. Yeah. No. Turns no, into charcoal. No prelude, anything. Just bam, he's explodes. Because we've got Deus Ex Deus. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. It's Deus Ex Deus. It's the Supreme Being and is just there and kind of upset. Not that they not didn't telegraph the fact that he might just appear randomly at any point, but it's still kind of a cheap way to end the conflict of the Supreme being just shows up and blows up evil. And, and the Supreme being is played by John Houseman in his you know most supercilious, uh, demanding persona. Oh yeah. He's in, he immediately wants everybody to just get to work, cleaning things up. He's, he can't abide untidiness. And, and, ah, uh, yes, this was, a, of course I let you borrow the map. This was a great test of my creation. Evil. <laughs> what? Kind of hedges around the question of why evil had to exist. It's something to do with free will. but Yeah, it really does feel like at the very end of this kid's dream, some, some little bit of a psychology textbook that Kevin <laughs> read, or, an, or philosophy and ethics or something. Like He touches upon something here, but he can't get his head around it. And, and he just... Yeah. Mm, but they they clean up what they all a bunch of the pieces of evil and put them into a a royal mail post bin. Yeah, they have to get every single piece of evil, as the supreme being explains, because the m- smallest fragment could have devastating uh, effects. And they all just kind of leave, leave in a billowing pile of smoke as the missing piece of evil they forgot also starts to smoke and smolder. 
and they leave Kevin behind. The uh, yeah, the the Randall and his crew still have their get they get their jobs back, and uh, with a pay cut. I don't know how how you get paid by the Supreme Being for helping build and maintain the universe, but but Kevin's left behind because he can't get home and he can't go with them. And he's just stuck with this uh, smoking remnant of evil. Yeah. And this is where the movie actually takes the wildest turn, in my opinion. On, on the one hand, it could be the kind of the simplest, cheapest out, which is Kevin wakes up in his own bed. Yeah. And the smoke he's surrounded by is smoke from a house fire. As so. one of the technology technological gadgets his folks were so focused on has broken and caught the house on fire, and the firefighters are breaking down his door in a way that is very similar to how his bedroom was devastated in the past. So it makes you Woods wonder, okay, are you really dragging me through this whole movie to tell me it was all a dream? Seriously? Yeah. Oh, look, and one of the firefighters looks like Akinamemnon. And gives Hi, Kevin Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah. And huh. Kevin still has all the pictures. And and yeah. seeing the, the fire firefighter who looks like Agamemnon leads him to rummage through and find, no, it was real because I've got the pictures. It wasn't all a dream. And this is the moment that I've seen more times on the internet than anything else, <laughs> which is the final moment of this movie. Where his folks open up the broken microwave and find the smoldering piece of evil inside. And Kevin gets to deliver the classic line. (laughs) Don't touch it. It's pure evil. And they touch it and explode. Just jump cut explosion. So Kevin is out there in the front of the, the ruins of his house and the smoldering piles of ash that were his parents. And that's the movie. And that's the end of the movie. Oh, did you want a satisfying ending? Did you want good closure? Did you want nothing? Nope. Kevin's an orphan and there's no explanations. Good luck. <laughs> what in the world? Is is a peppy George Harrison song going to make you feel better? Because you do get that over the credits, but I'm not <laughs> sure it really makes it all better. You, you get that over the credits and then <laughs> it literally fades out at the end of the credits to the actors all laughing on set at the end of one of the takes. And so the entire movie actually does end its narrative with random explosion. He's an orphan, nothing more. And then it finishes out that by laughing at the very end of the credits. And I don't know what to do. Uh This movie was weird when I was a kid, and you know what? It's weirder now. <laughs> You've given me a strange movie, Dad. Well, that set the tone for a lot of things we've watched since then. So I'm glad oh, we yes. got to go back to this one. Oh, yeah. Oh, and it really did. We've talked about some members of the cast. We really do need to talk about the people who played the um, the crew that, that Kevin falls in with. First of all, Kevin was played by Craig Warnock, and this is really his only role. There's not much by way of uh, acting credits for Warnock uh, following this movie. But I thought he did an amazing job in this, because he makes Kevin relatable and believable and still very much a kid. He's not 
delivering grown-up lines, but in a kid's suit. He, he has a response and approach to what's happening around him the way a precocious and curious kid would have. Uh, so I thought that was great casting and a really good performance uh, for uh, such a young actor. Mm-hmm. But then uh, we've got David Rappaport as Randall. And as the rest of the crew, we've got Kenny Baker, Malcolm Dixon, Mike Edmonds, Jack Purvis, uh, Tiny Ross. So many roles that these guys have played, so many other movies in which they have appeared. And to see them working together like this is, is terrific. And some of them had worked as like doubles acts in, in, in comedy as well. But it was, it's a great collection of performers. Every member of this crew has his, his own personality. They each have different ways of relating to, to each other, any given two of them. So it, it makes them feel like this weird, chaotic jumble, and yet they are very much individuals. And the fact that it's all structured, as they say, you know, we agreed, no leaders, so do what I say. That's kind of Randall's yeah. approach to leadership, and it works. They are wild and crazy, but they all have, in a group like this, it's so easy for for people to be kind of forgotten, yeah. for characters to just become part of a group mm -hmm. and lose the individual. Each one of these has a characterization. They are individual and fleshed out characters. They don't get a lot of chances to be like they don't have individual arcs, but they do have established personalities. And that does a lot to drive this forward because it makes the fact that this is a rolling ball of chaos, a rolling ball of chaos with people in it. And if it wasn't for that connection, it would actually be harder to follow, despite the fact that this is adding more noise to what's going on. At least in my opinion, it, it, it helps with that. I think so. It, it again, it it's a little bit of that inside structure. Yeah, it, it it helps you understand how you can get from one wild thing to another when you can watch all the dominoes fall because each of the characters has their own response individual to what's going on. Well, I think we're getting to our final questions then. We are. Well, it's a movie. Screen or no screen? Oh my goodness, I don't know how to go. I think I'm saying screen. But this is very much a bat, like a, it's not going to be everyone's thing. But Time Bandits would definitely make an excellent, like, background viewing thing. It's one of those vignette stylings, crazy enough going on. Sitting down through it is wonderful. But you could also just have it on and other people go, what is this? And catch <laughs> bits of it. And it would also be fun and fine in that sense, too. Oh, now, I think that for your first viewing, at least, there's enough detail that's rewarding. I think this is, I, I say screen, but I think the ideal way to see this movie is like when you're, let's say, really tired, and yet you're not sleepy, if you know what I mean. You just, you need to be in the right frame of mind to pay enough attention to this while it just washes over you. Hey, audience, any of you got wisdom teeth surgery coming up? <laughs> Boy, do I have the movie for the couple of days after. I think you might be right, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I say screen, but it's best 
appreciated with a certain frame of mind. Yeah. I and, think that's a good way to put it. Right. And our, our next question, uh, revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Well, it did have a planned sequel at first. It did. But it was unfortunately shelved. But interestingly enough, we're pretty timely on this because there is an upcoming TV series. There is. I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah. The series is being shot and it's being released on Apple TV Plus. And that's really weird because my response is... I think I want to tell this one rest in peace, but it's a rest in peace. I wish more writers would look at the way that this structures its wild connections of story, the way this does its world. I feel like there's untapped potential in there. I feel like there's something about the way this rolls from thing to thing and connects weirdly disparate at times and wild adventures in the way it does could be brilliant for other long form series to take note of. But I don't know if it needs to be time bandits anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel the same way. Uh, I don't think it needs as much as it would have been fun to see some of these characters come back. Uh, I don't think it needed a sequel. I'm not really interested in a reboot Although I'll, I will take a look at the Apple TV series, but my uh, my hopes are not very high. I I would like to see it rest in peace and yet continue to have influence because it did so many interesting things that, as you say, other writers and filmmakers can learn from. Yeah, just like I'm always, I enjoy Lego. When I see a Lego set and make a custom piece for it, like oh, th- we've made this new piece only for this set. I know that down the line, you're going to see another set use it because they'll always reuse a part. Yep. I kind of want to see the sets, the the stories that would come after and reuse parts that showed up in Time Bandits. But that doesn't mean I need a new Time Bandits to build. I want to see this this weird version of all of all of uh, like fantasy having this this origin in the time of legends spin off into its own thing. The idea that the awkward story of this couple that keeps on getting interrupted being able to spin off into its own thing and given time to maybe get better jokes than the ones they had of that concept great the idea of the jumping through time by finding the points like this seems great follow that they just don't all have to be smashed together into time (laughs) bandits anymore yeah i mean you can look at this and and i know that the the novel uh, a wrinkle in time far preceded this but you can definitely look at these as similar takes or as very wildly different takes on a similar story idea of cracks in the universe and and having to travel in in strange ways to achieve strange things mhm yeah <laughs> so there's just potential it was interesting to come back to this. I've seen this a few times, but I hadn't seen it for the last 10 years or so before watching it for this podcast. So I'm glad I came oh, back yeah. to it. Because I think it was about will... 10 or 12 years ago that you and I watched it. I think so. Ah, no, At more least, than. Yeah, more than that. Way more than, actually. <laughs> oh, no. Almost more. 
more more like 15 wow or more yeah <laughs> actually another thing to note though is in terms of things i wish were used more the visual styling that this has is really cool when it gets to some of the, the fantastical elements i got the criterion collection version for being able to do the podcast and it is focused entirely on how the map was made like the graphics design of the map and my goodness that is a cool aesthetic that you only get to see bits and pieces of but if you can look up what the map from time bandits looks like it is wonderful yeah it's this weird combination of blueprints and victorian typography and almost little bits of leonardo da vinci sort of styling it's an interesting yeah. aesthetic indeed it's like imagine if you asked leonardo da vinci uh to take a box uh to take a box of crayola with mostly blue and draw the insides of a swiss watch as he took it apart and you'd kind of get what this looks like, and it's brilliant. But you only get to see it folded up and it angles in people's hands as they go. But when you get to see like the scans of the whole thing, it's really cool. And it's one of those things I wish they used more. And I wish someone else would take this and say, Ooh, I can I can work with that graphics style. Let me go off in this other direction with it. Now, that does interest me as to how they're going to approach that in this TV series. Are they going to try to stay with that aesthetic, maybe update it a bit, or are they going to decide to take a whole new take on it? Uh, I wonder. It, it'll lose something if they don't ca capture at least a little bit of that, that visual style. Yeah. So, and it's just going to be interesting to see what they do with that and who might do what with it, what else of it. Yeah. But in the meantime, we are going to continue our, our journey through the world of, uh, of 20th century media. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another podcast. In the meantime, Dad, where does the map say they can find you? <laughs> well, you can go to bymatthewporter.omg.lol. You will find there a link to my website, a link to my YouTube channel, a link to a now page that'll tell you what I'm up to at the moment. And speaking of that uh, YouTube channel, uh, I'm continuing to make Draft House Diary movie reviews. Uh, some of which have our, our friend Ian here as a, a guest reviewer. And Aha. Ian, where can people find you? I can be found at itemcrafting.omg.lol. And I can be found on uh, Twitch as itemcraftinglive and at itemcrafting on YouTube as well. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com and that's where you will find all of our past episodes where you will find uh, our contact page a link to our discord uh, a link to our patreon thank you very much to anybody who's supporting us there and you also get some uh, uh, bonus content if you support us there and a link to our shop if you like t-shirts and coffee mugs and notebooks and other fun things but most important thank you very much for for listening we're uh, really glad that you joined us, and we hope we'll see you again. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>